0: Emergencies this morning, and what I mean by this is not worrying about uh, corn bore problems because sometimes farmers think that's an emergency or whether they've got too many uh, bugs growing on their. This is about how to manage uh, patients that have been injured somehow with uh, an agricultural environment. Uh, how many of you feel pretty comfortable around uh, farms and uh, dealing with those? A few of you do, great. I don't know that, um, that uh, you realize this, but every state has a pretty significant agricultural indu- industry. Um, so depending upon where you're at, you're gonna be seeing a lot of different uh, kinds of uh, agricultural problems. It might not be uh, specifically some of these things, but it will involve some sort of um, uh, emergency associated with either pesticides, uh, equipment, uh, as well as coming in contact with power lines, those kinds of things. So your EMS background, your profession, is going to help you uh, manage these kinds of patients. I would also just like to throw this out as, uh, as the beginning of this, is that I am not a farmer. I, I've not really spent any time on farms other than going on calls. Um, so I'm going to call on some guys to help me. Uh, as we go through this because I'm sure some of you have some background associated with the equipment that we'll be talking about. I certainly will. In fact, you'll see some examples of what uh, I've been on because I do have some photos that we're going to go through and, and talk about managing these patients. So when we talk about uh, the different types of uh, incidents that you might be dispatched to, it really includes all of these kinds of things. and. Uh, I think it's, it's important to recognize there really isn't a target age group associated with this because uh, kids drive a lot of equipment on the farms. Uh, the elderly whom we might consider are actually very active farmers as well as uh, wh- who you might think would be in the normal workforce involved in farms. So it really runs quite a gamut of the types of patients that you see. Being a farmer is really a hazardous uh, profession. The problem is, is at least as a rule, not in every case, is that sometimes the safety mechanisms that are in place to protect the farmers they disable or they go around them somehow to save time. Um, So I think it's important to recognize that uh, there are uh, mechanisms in place to help farmers but sometimes they are not followed uh, very, very carefully. When we talk about the major causes of death, it really is the driving the tractors that is the number one. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with these, and I'll show you some pictures of different types, but uh, unless you're pretty experienced in that, um, they're pretty top-heavy. They have a high center of gravity. One thing is, is that if, uh, if it even goes up an incline just a little bit, it can roll over backwards very easily. And it's not uncommon to see a 12-year-old, 10-year-old driving a tractor uh, who might not have the same reaction times as an adult and it can get away from them very, very quickly. So being thrown off the tractor, having it roll, those kinds of things are very, very common. Uh, Machinery accidents, we're gonna be talking about things like power takeoff shafts, uh, the uh, combine heads, those things that get people hurt uh, very very quickly. We we'll also like to think about the possibility of uh, uh, livestock. Uh, some of the cows, uh, bulls, pigs, those kinds of things really can be very large, and when they get a full head of steam, it can cause a lot of injury associated with that patient. So. I mean, there's this perception, if you will, this uh, stereotype that this guy is kind of the uh, typical appearing farmer. It's not really the case anymore. It really is um, a profession that has a lot of older uh, farmers in it. But at the same time, it is one where uh, there actually are folks that are not necessarily in the uh, elderly category that are doing farming. So um, this is a, an old picture that I thought was kind of interesting Is that uh, it really kind of drives what I'm trying to suggest to you here is that a lot of young people are driving tractors. And the thing about it that really is is that they're probably not driving the more modern tractors because they let the, 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 the actual farmer do that. So they're following up in a tractor that might be pulling a wagon or... Pulling a, a bin that's trying or a, a grain wagon trying to collect bin those uh, grain go, that sort of thing, but if you look at it, the older tractors typically don't have any roll bar protection. They ride very high with these uh, large tractor type wheels. They have very high center of gravity. It's very easy to get a wheel caught on the shoulder, and have it roll down into a ditch or down an embankment. Uh, It's not uncommon to get them stuck on a bridge or hit a bridge because of the width of the tires. So there's a lot of hazards associated with driving these tractors. Now the whole idea would be is to have some sort of roll bar, um, some rollover protection system that would prevent the tractor from completely rolling over. And most of the newer ones have that, but it really is pretty substantial because these tractors are heavy. They require a lot of weight uh, so that they can pull whatever it is that they need to pull. And that means the engines are very powerful, not a lot of speed involved, but very powerful. So it's easy for them to uh, get out of control. So with the roll bar protection, uh, it's designed to keep the, uh, the farmer in and not allow that uh, tractor to be rolled over. So here's just some examples of different types whether it would be just the roll bar protection system itself or built into the cab um, so that you can um, be in in a better environment. The thing about this is with tractors nowadays because they are so powerful They can do a lot more. They can pull a lot more uh, apparatus. It is not uncommon for a farmer to be out in a field someplace by himself or herself and uh, might go hours without anybody checking on them. So if an incident occurred, it might be a long time before someone actually found them, before they were found uh, missing. So we need to think about how the tractors are involved with this. And just here's an example of some of the weights associated with this tractor, again, to try and keep the front end down as it's pulling it. They put a lot of weight on the front, and you can see that the cab is fairly well smashed at this point. It was involved in a rollover, and this part of the tractor, this area here, is really pretty strong. The cab is not, and that's where the, the driver is, and unfortunately, this was a, a fatality. It also is important to recognize that if you start to go up an, an, an incline, because most of the, uh, the uh, power is back here on the rear wheels, it's very easy for the tractor to pop up. I mean, so fast, that you can't get your foot off the, the throttle fast enough or the, the hand throttle fast enough to worry about uh, trying to, to prevent this. You just can't. And you're over. Same way down an elevation or an angle down a ditch or the side of a field or something like that is very easy because of this high center of gravity for the tractor to uh, overturn. So, again, here's an example where um, this uh, tractor rolled down an embankment, ended up in the uh, creek here, and the guy was out by himself for working on his field. Nobody found him. So not only was he squished, but he also drowned at the same time because it was found underneath the tractor. And again, you can see when they get the duals on, the tractor becomes very, very wide. The idea is to get more power to the rear wheels so it can pull heavier equipment, that sort of thing. But unfortunately, it becomes tough to manage, uh, especially if you're not experienced with this piece of equipment. Here's an example where um, the duals Hit the bridge pillar here, uh, trying to get through the, uh, the the county bridge. You've probably seen this where they have a gravel road coming to a small bridge. It covers a creek and then go on the other side. And usually they're older, not very wide. So in this particular instance, what happened was the um, the wheels gave way, stopped, uh, and um, part of the equipment came forward. The driver came back already and got caught in some of the equipment. It wasn't a fatality, but got caught just because he didn't gauge how wide the vehicle was uh, going through that, uh, that bridge. This is a, a, a tractor that articulates. In other words, there's a center pin so that it can spin, uh, turn very, very sharp corners. These, by the way, are hundreds of thousands of dollars in value, very, very expensive type tractors. A Lot of power to them. So they can pull these discs and pull planters, which are, again, very, very heavy. And uh, he turned it too sharply and got stuck uh, in the, uh, the cab of this particular uh, vehicle. So when thinking about going up that incline, at least from a science standpoint, this suggests it takes about three-fourths of a second for you to get to that critical point where you're either going to go over or not and unfortunately our reaction time is not very good. Nobody's reaction time can correct that so it's not uncommon within almost two seconds to be all the way over, depending upon where you're at going up that particular incline. So being aware of the tractor's characteristics are important and again unfortunately a lot of folks don't really do that. Now. This is kind of the business end of, uh, of the tractor, and um, again for those of you that, that aren't really familiar with them, essentially what you've got is the engine driving a transmission so it can drive the wheels, but there's also an offshoot of that that's called the power takeoff shaft, it's a PTO shaft, and it spins. The idea is, is that you can attach a shaft to the PTO shaft, Um, and it can drive other pieces of equipment like a baler, um, a planter, those kinds of things and that powers the equipment that's being pulled behind. An auger, those kinds of things. Then you'll note that it's got black hoses along through here and come on, those are also the hydraulic system that can um, raise and lower and turn devices so that it can be uh, effective. Now. One of the things that sometimes happens is, is that the power takeoff shafts can be a, a pretty severe cause of death, associated, and injury associated with farming. So I don't know if you can really see this, is a, a, a farm here that's covered with a, a blanket at this point. He got caught in the power takeoff shaft. Here, here's what you have to envision is that, if the tractor's running, and the power takeoff shaft is engaged, it's spinning there's a sleeve over it that's supposed to protect uh, that shaft uh, from the outside. And you probably notice that sometimes farmers wear coveralls or thicker kind of clothing. What can happen is if they disable the protective covering and uh, there's a, a, a pin that helps keep the shaft in place to the power takeoff uh, uh, shaft, it can catch on your clothing. It can pull you in very, very quickly, and it can spin you around, it can throw you away. Sometimes you'll just get your clothing ripped and uh, you get thrown, but sometimes because the clothing is strong and thick enough, it can actually pull you in and spin you around the power takeoff shaft. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it, if that happens, it happens so fast, there's no way you can get out of that particular situation. So the idea is, is a protective covering so you don't get direct access to uh, the shaft. Again, when you see it, there's a there's a joint here that attaches to the power takeoff shaft, and then there's kind of a knuckle here, if you will, with a covering on it, so that you can't get down into it. But it takes time to remove and reattach, remove and reattach as you're changing equipment. So unfortunately, a lot of times, what happens, uh, this safety covering is removed from the, 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 the piece of equipment, or it breaks. And um, so in that case, these openings can actually be uh, fairly well exposed. Now, some of the older tractors uh, that have uh, not quite as much horsepower, the shaft spins between 400 and 600 times a minute. And some of the, the higher power tractors, up to 1,000, 1,200 times a minute. Some of them actually have a couple of different shafts depending upon the brand and and the requirements of that particular tractor, so you've got a couple of areas of exposure. As you can see from from here. So this is an example of a a piece of equipment that is driven by a power takeoff shaft. um, Old style manure spreader so that they throw the manure into this device. They pulled along behind the tractor and there's, a, there's a, a belt, if you will, that moves the manure back to the area here and this throws it out and spreads it on the field so it can be used for fertilizer and replenish uh, the ground. Some of the uh, uh, PTO shafts are rectangular. They're trying to get away from it, but some of the older style tractors have rectangular type shells. They're trying to make them more rounded, the rectangular one. There's, it's more likely to get caught than it would be the round one. As you see that. Here's an old style tractor using the PTO shaft to drive an auger, a post uh, digger. Again, just a uh, piece of, uh, of equipment. You can see there's a lot of exposed uh, joints to this. A lot of areas where the, uh, the the farmer could get caught and pulled into that particular piece of equipment. So what ends up happening is, as I mentioned, uh, they have anything on their clothing, uh, uh, or if there's a pin that's kind of sticking out to catch it, it's very easy to get pulled into these devices. Whether it's a pulley, whether it's a PTO shaft. So again, the idea is that, that the manufacturers put these big warning labels and they put these uh, devices on to try and protect them. But as this slide's indicating, they sometimes break. And it's just easier for the farmers to remove them and leave that joint exposed uh, because it could pull them in. So here's an example of a farmer whose overalls um, got caught on the power takeoff shaft and pulled him in. It took about two seconds for this to happen. Now, I don't know if you can kind of see, the, um, see what's happening, but he wasn't found for quite a while because nobody recognized that he'd been missing because Again, farmers do a lot of stuff on their own out and about. So again, you can see it had the square rectangular type uh, PTO shaft, and he was uh, leaving it spinning, trying to make some adjustments here, and his coveralls pulled him in, spun him around uh, on that particular uh, device. he, he did not survive. That is, that is true. Um, yeah, he's just kind of folded and folded on himself. That's so much power, and this is an old tractor with not very much horsepower to it, but it's got enough power to do that to you that quickly when it comes to um, managing the patient. This becomes a recovery situation. This is not a, a, a rescue uh, resuscitation uh, attempt at this point. And you'll find that typically what happens is that there's clothing that gets caught, wraps around, you see here's the shaft, here's his coveralls. Um, the, the story that we got for this one was he was trying to step over it and his pant legs got caught and it pulled him down and in and wrapped him around. Going around the so yep. there? that's right. That's how much power these things have or until it runs out of fuel, that's correct. That's when, you'll start, that's when it'll stop. All these devices have kill switches, so if it's running when you arrive there, it's important to make sure that that is hit. Um, but if you're like me, I don't know much about the controls of a tractor, I don't know much about what goes on in there, so trying to find it unless I knew what I was looking for can be kind of confusing. So I, I don't know if, if you have any interest in this or not, but I know that if you're in an area where there's going to be some, um, the possibility of um, agricultural situations, it's probably not a bad idea to go to the implement dealer and say, hey, I'm one of the paramedics in town. I'd just like to learn where's the on-off switch and where's the kill switch. And I know the implement dealers would be glad to show you stuff with their, with their equipment. And it varies. Um, Again, you guys that kind of have a background, there's the the green boys and the red boys, the green boys being the John Deere folks, and the red boys are the Massey Ferguson International Harvester kind of uh, folks. So it's like Chevy and Ford. There's a big rivalry between the the different types of devices. And again, you can see on a close-up here, trying to how tightly the clothing is wrapped around, and it happened so fast, you can see he got cut on the knuckle uh, there. And what he was using, was you see, is that large pin to hold the uh, device on the uh, PTO shaft, and this pin caught his pants leg as he was trying to step over it. Grabbed him, pulled him down in, A couple seconds it was over with. And there was really nothing else to do uh, for that patient. If you get a chance to watch the movie Son-in-Law, this is what Polly Shore drives right in, okay. Uh combine, and um, this is a, a picture of uh, just one brand, but I think you'll find what's interesting is that this area right here is not typically what you see on the combine. It depends what they're using it for, and they have a different head if they're picking corn, or they have a different head if they're using it for soybeans, Um, and depending upon where you're at, they have different devices for uh, wheat, they have different devices for cotton, Um, maybe not this exact machine, but these are all interchangeable depending on the type of crop that they're using, uh, they're trying to harvest. So this is a a picture of a combine with the corn picker head that's got the rose these points here so can go right down the rows of the corn. The corn then is pulled in and then you see there's an auger right here and there's something inside each one of these things called snap rollers that are designed to snap the corn stalks. Then the corn is augered to the middle. You can see it moves both, both ways here. Moves toward the middle where um, the corn is removed from the cob stored up in this area, then there's a a chute here that takes the debris and pushes out back. It's kind of an oversimplification, but there's lots and lots of moving parts in this thing. Again, this is a couple hundred thousand dollars for combines nowadays. It's very, very expensive. Um, And they put a lot of safety features in them so that Um, It minimizes the possibility of injury. They don't go fast, but again, they have a tremendous amount of power. And again, as I was suggesting, these rollers here snap the corn stalks off. The corn is moved this way through this gathering auger up in here so that the corn is removed from the husk. Then the corn is filled up this way to this uh, bin and then the excess is pulled out back this way. And then there's another auger, a spiral kind of device, to unload the corn from the bin into a wagon or to a truck so it can be shipped off to what's going to happen. So again, it's very, very um, complicated as far as the equipment associated with this. Um, here's an example of what you might use for wheat, uh, sort of thing where it's kind of a a spinning kind of device that, again, that you, uh, Can cut down the uh, crop and it would pull it into the device. If you're this close to a running one I think that's kind of bad just uh, so that you have an idea what to expect. Here's here's the concern with these devices is that it is possible for these snap rollers and the head to become clogged by whatever might be on the field that grows besides the, the corn. So they stop They get out and they try and unclog it with stuff still running. And it would be very easy to get your arm pulled into uh, the snap rollers at this point. So again, when you think about uh, the speed associated in those uh, snap rollers, it's about 12 feet per second. So, you can't, if you're trying to unclog a stock, you can't get it out, your hand out fast enough once it starts to pull you in. Because it moves that quickly and again you can see what these are iron pulling in here so there's going to be significant amount of crushing uh, injury associated with that and perhaps shearing injury as well. And this kind of shows you the the business end of the snap rollers. There's the auger then that pulls the uh, corn stalks to the center so it can be moved over. And this thing, just the head itself, weighs several thousand pounds. It's very, very heavy uh, and can cause uh, some injury itself. So, in an effort to protect themselves, the manufacturers put these labels all over the uh, tractors for your own safety, shut off the engines before unclogging the header, but it doesn't happen that often. Again, they think that in an effort to save time, um, they uh, can get it unclogged without having to shut it down. And yeah, that probably happens several times. Uh, In fact, I'm sure there's uh, folks that have done it successfully without shutting off the engine, so they feel like they've got a feel for what's gonna happen until that one time something goes wrong and pulls in. So again, this is just suggesting uh, how quickly uh, your arm can be pulled in. Uh, you, once it unclogs and starts to pull through, pull the stock through. You can't let go fast enough before it pulls you into the uh, device. Um, so again, you can see that uh, there's a, a little bit of uh, blood here. This is a the device where someone got pulled through, and then the extremity got sheared, and spun around on the auger. And the auger doesn't know any different. It doesn't know a corn stalk from an arm or whatever. Just takes it, chops it up, and moves it on through. Now one of the other concerns is, is that because of the weight, uh, especially if you're trying to change the heads, it's very easy to get caught underneath one of these devices uh, as you're trying to remove it uh, to put it on another uh, another head for that patient. So, again, uh, there's all sorts of protective mechanisms on the m- machine as to whether or not um, they're used effectively to protect the person changing it. So, this is just an example. Um, if you have a device of anything that is on top of a patient, especially out in the farm ground. Um, there's not much in your ambulance that you're going to have or your rescue equipment to get this person up except for the airbags. So Because they can go in flat and you can start to com, uh, put pressure to them to raise them up and then you can start to slip some cribbing in underneath, to raise it up a little bit more, get the gap bigger, then you can start to put some cribbing under here, raise the bag up even further to try and get the patient out. And these airbags really are, are a very, very good device. Um, when we do the extrication lab uh, tomorrow, they'll have a set of these airbags for you guys, oh, I'm sorry, on Friday. Oh, it is tomorrow. Uh, they'll have a set of these airbags for you guys to play with. You can see what they're like. If you haven't used them before, um, they're pretty impressive as far as the weight that they can lift up off of a patient. Again, if the ground is soft, um, JAWS Life, any of those kind of curse tools are not going to work uh, in, uh, in these kinds of environments. So what should happen is they have these hydraulic rams that they can raise and lower the device. So they can remove it and should have these locking mechanisms in place to try and prevent the device from slipping and moving around. Uh, but unfortunately, um, sometimes those are not in place or activated. You're also going to find that on a combine there's a lot of pulleys. There's a lot of um, Uh, rubberized belts that spin at high speeds and what they're asking us to do is to not raise up the protective coverings while the engines are running because it's certainly possible you could get stuck in those things so knowing where the equipment is knowing where to uh, to uh, shut off the equipment will be important and this is a uh, word of advice from someone who doesn't know the actual equipment very well, I wouldn't get in there and try and move switches around unless you knew what you were doing. Make sure there's somebody there that knows what you're doing before you start to do that. Um, I was on one scene where no one knew how to shut off the equipment and there weren't any really agricultural people around, so someone suggested, well, let's just put a hole in the gas tank, the diesel tank, and let it drain out until it stops running that's a big mistake because there's hundreds of gallons of diesel in these things and uh, you really contaminate the environment so don't do anything like that either. Um, Just because there's a key doesn't necessarily mean that's going to shut the engine off either. It's important that you recognize that. Um, Here's an example where they have a a device that will stop the engine from running, despite the fact that the key might still be in place or not. And as you're starting into the the combine areas, a lot more controls, a lot more stuff, and really they're becoming pretty self-sufficient in these. Um, you can get coolers and you can get stereos, CD players, you can get air conditioning, all that stuff inside these devices. There's a lot of uh, um, Uh, amenities, a lot of controls associated with the equipment. And again, because they're in these for hours upon hours, uh, it's not uncommon for someone not to recognize someone's in trouble um, till um, many, many hours have gone by because they're out there by themselves. Now here's a picture um, from the side panel of a combine. You can see a lot of different pulleys associated with this. it's the same kind of principle where it's easy for your clothing to pull you into these pulleys, these belts and that too can pull you right into the uh, machine. So if you get your clothing caught into the belt as it's moving around the the pulley, the, the drive shaft as an example, it's very easy for your hand to get caught, especially underneath the belt as it's going over that metal roller and can cause these kinds of injuries associated with that. Uh, Probably not life-threatening, but very, very painful, and there's a good possibility that this uh, extremity is not salvageable at this point. Um, Hydraulics is an integral part of most of the tractor systems. Again, really what we're talking about is that there's a, a, a pump, if you will, that uses specialized fluid through it that puts that fluid under pressure so it can cause a a piston to move up and down, left or right, that sort of thing. So there's thousands of pounds of pressure of fluid inside these hoses. And the idea would be is that these hoses stay intact so that uh, there's no leaking of the fluid and the device stays functional. Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is with the system powered up and the hydraulic pumps running, that farmers have a tendency to run their hose or their hands over the hose, especially if there is a bulge in it. They kind of take their just instinctive to kind of take their hand and move along that that bulge. Um, and you can see some of the hoses are pretty pretty strong as far as their their composition goes. And again, a tremendous amount of pressure to move these pistons associated with that piece of equipment. Unfortunately, when there's a bulge, it's not uncommon for there to be a little pinpoint leak of the hydraulic fluid coming out. And because it's coming out at such high pressure, this is a farmer wearing a glove that ran his hand over a bulge in the hose and it shot hydraulic fluid under high pressure into his hand, causing it to swell up causing it to split open like this. And the hydraulic fluid inside of the tissue like this is caustic. Um, There's really no way to salvage this hand uh, when it's full of hydraulic fluid like this. Again, you can see that the pressures associated with this cause this separation of the tissues because it was so full of hydraulic fluid. A little about uh, augers, there's all sorts of different types in the, in the uh, farm environment. There are some that are designed so that you put the grain in it and it moves it into a storage bin or a trailer. And there are some designed as unloaders to get stuff out of that bin and to go into a truck or something, uh, a, a railroad car to transport those uh, to the market. So, again, essentially what an auger is, it's a piece of uh, iron or very hard metal that's in this kind of spiral shape, and there's a motor or a power takeoff shaft that drives that spiraling piece of metal to pull stuff along, pulls it up or down or across, depending upon where that auger is in place. Now, the typical auger that's that's used for unloading should have some sort of protective covering over the open part of the auger. So that grain can get into it and it can move along the shaft but nothing bigger than that should be able to get in there. Unfortunately those become damaged uh, or they're removed for whatever reason and so the auger becomes exposed at that point. And here's an example of a brand new one where The auger is, it's almost impossible to get access to when the device is functioning the way that it's supposed to. But here's an example of one that's become damaged, uh, one that has got a lot of openings to it. So it'd be very easy to get your hand or your foot stuck in this auger and uh, be pulled into it. And again, it's much more powerful than the strength of your bones. It'll just pull you right in. And they'll snap and twist and break um, their extremities very, very easily. So here's an example of a guy that was wearing a big, thick farmer's boot. They got his foot stuck in auger, he was able to get it out pretty quickly, but you can see it chewed up the foot, fractured, fractured the ankle. And this just took about a second for it to happen. Uh, so again, you can see that he was fortunate he was able to get out of the... Uh, piece of equipment. Because of the possibility of being stuck in it, it, spins and spins and spins, it can pull, it can lengthen, it can sh- cut off an extremity. So this is a leg, this is the thigh, here's the knee over here, there's these types of marks all the way up and down the leg. Again, there was someone there that witnessed what was going ahead so they shut the machine off very, very quickly. Um, These are patients that are essentially trapped in the device. And about the only approved way to get them out of that is to back up the auger so it goes back the other way manually. So uh, if they're awake still, there's a lot of pain associated with this. So sedation, if they're awake, if their pressure will tolerate it. Um, Again, the the calls that I've been on is amputation in the field of that extremity. They cut it off before they try and get them out because they're so lengthened so long that you can't get the device, or uh, the patient extricated from the device. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, uh, that's a good question. but That's not in your scope of practice as a paramedic to do an amputation, uh, although it wouldn't be very difficult in these settings. Um, the, um, the situations where I the guy was trapped for several hours. Um, the, um, the, the twisting and, and snapping of the bones led to some, some pretty significant bleeding, but eventually got to the point where the vessels clotted off. So he wasn't bleeding very much when we got there. Uh, so we had a little time. So uh, anesthesiologist and orthopedic surgeon were brought to the scene. And they did it, they, they sedated him with uh, ketamine or special K, as you guys might have heard in other ways, which is a kind of an anesthetic, kind of a disassociative medicine in their brain. So they don't have to worry quite so much about airway stuff because it can get to his airway very easily. And then did the amputation. Um, the orthopedic surgeon did the amputation, right equipment, and that sort of thing. It, it took hours to get it done. Now, here's an example of um, where the, uh, the auger just took the foot right off. He was able to get out quickly, but what I'd like you to just see here, he's wearing pretty thick, heavy leather boots, and how it went through the boot and the foot uh, in just a matter of a couple of seconds. So it's very, very quick as far as that goes. Now, I don't know if you've seen, uh, as you drive around the countryside, you've seen these big, huge metal grain bins that are on farms. Some are very wide, some are very tall. At the bottom of those, they have an auger that helps try and move grain towards the middle or towards the exit so they can get out of that uh, particular device. Usually, a little electric motor that runs it. uh, It's usually running on uh, 220 or 440 power, so it's very powerful as far as electricity goes, Uh, but at the same time, it's uh, something that can really cause a lot of damage to your your patient. This is an example of the unloading type auger. The sweep auger gets it to this area, then the unloading auger unloads it down to um, hopefully the loading auger, something underneath here, so it can move the auger to whatever you're going to make it go to. And again, um, this is an example of an electric Uh, auger. So here's a guy that was inside the grain bin trying to help get the grain out and got his clothing caught in the sweep uh, auger and you can see it just ripped the clothing off wrapped up around his neck and head so he actually strangled uh, with this uh, device. Not a lot of uh, physical damage it was more his clothing ripping off, getting caught around his neck, and uh, strangling him. Again, that's what corn looks like inside the grain bin, um, and that's what he was trying to remove out of the uh, the bin. Okay, so you can see how the clothing got caught. It's very small auger. There's not a lot of size to the uh, the blade to it but it caught clothing, it was electric powered, so it wasn't running on a power takeoff shaft, still had enough force to do this very, very quickly. Um, So it's an augering type thing that you see with uh, um, meat markets, grocery stores, where they're making a um, hamburger, I guess, so that uh, you can uh, see what's going on, but again, (laughs) There's really no way you can get uh, that device off the page without backing them uh, up. Um, this is a, a picture of a, of a baler, a hay baler type thing. Where, again, you've probably seen where the farmers they have these uh, fields of, uh, looks like weeds, really, quite honestly, that they seem to be growing. And um, they go through and they cut it down and let it lay there for a while. Then they go through and make it into rows and then they drive this device that's the tractor is pulling along and it picks up these uh, these rows of the hay, the straw, and uh, compresses it into a bale and shoots it out the side. That's the, the theory behind this. So what ends up happening is to get this into here, there's a lot of sharp well really metal spikes on this yellow thing that spins around to catch it to bring it in there and then there's a compressor in there that presses everything together and then shoots it out the back. Now here's an example of another type of a, a, a bail that uses an augering kind of a system and again we were just showing on this picture here how quickly someone can get brought into uh, that device and the auger grounds up that patient very very quickly. Here's a picture of what the the compressor or the piston is that compresses the the uh, hay into a, a hay bale. Tremendous amount of pressure associated sure this all on hydraulics that compresses it into place to make it and I don't know if you've ever done any baling but apparently it's a lot of work. It's much more work than I could ever do. Uh, it's a tremendous amount of work to lift these things because they're quite heavy and it's very, very easy to get caught in these kinds of things. Now, this too is a baler but it works on a different principle. This doesn't make hay bales, this is the device that makes those big round things that you see in the cornfields or the uh, hay fields a lot. And it can be used for a lot of different products besides hay but essentially it's the same principle, it has these spikes here that pulls the product into the machine, and these belts pick it up, spin it around and around, and just keep adding to it and adding to it until the device becomes full. Then the back end opens up, and now it pops one of those big round bales that you might see in the uh, in the device. So here's a guy that went to um, unclog uh, his machine and uh, got it unclogged, and got his feet up against those straps, uh, these straps that pull the hail up, and so it just ran and ran and went through his boots, went through his skin, causing these kinds of of damage, um, significant damage associated with those those balers. Skid loaders, a lot of farms have these things now, a lot of construction people have these devices. Quite honestly, they look like a lot of fun to drive, but they can be kind of dangerous uh, if you're not knowing what you're doing with that. Again, the idea would be is it has a protective cage. Remembering that it's got drive wheels uh, on each side. There's controls. You can run one side or the other of this, as well as it has a, a, a lift, kind of like a loader scoop. You can have it do a lot of different things with these devices. They can actually move pretty quickly, um, especially with the scoop up. It has a very high center of gravity, so it's easy to roll over. It's not quite as easy on the, uh, when it's down, but again, the idea would be is that you have a protective cage in there to keep the, the occupant uh, in. Um, When there is a protective cage, seat belts are very, very important, and that would apply to any device that has rollover protection so that we can um, keep that occupant inside the device, not allow them to be ejected because, again, typically they're ejected in the direction that the vehicle's rolling, so they end up being squashed by the vehicle. So here's a a picture of one of those large metal-type grain bins that um, I was talking about earlier. Um, These are actually kind of interesting uh, devices. They're storage devices for for the grain. Now, one of the things that can happen with a full grain bin is as you start to unload it, if someone is walking around on the top of the grain, it can pull them down. Why would you even be inside one of those things? Let me just tell you, uh, again, not being a farmer, but uh, talking to folks that this is a fairly common play area for kids. They'll jump into the grain, jump into the corn, and play around inside these kind of devices. And it's very easy for those sweep augers to get turned on and somebody not realize there's anybody in there. Sometimes, especially if the grain's been in there a while, it can develop a crust across the top. So, someone goes in there to break up that crust so it can all get down into, uh, <clears throat> into the, the, the uh, auger to get it out. So, there might be somebody inside there when that uh, occurs. Again, if someone is inside and the auger is turned on, you can get pulled down very quickly. It's, it's really very similar to quicksand. You can get to the point where you can be buried in this d- corn within a few seconds. And once you're under, then you actually suffocate. You're not able to uh, get, a, get a breath at that point. So there's an important safety tip. Don't play in grain bins. Fight the urge to go in and, and jump in those grain bins. I guess I never saw the, the interest in that, but apparently it happens. Um, there's an urban legend going around in Iowa that, um, I don't know if you've seen these big grain elevators, those big cement type of storage facilities. And the state of of, uh, Iowa has inspectors that go inspect those grain elevators to make sure that they've got what's supposed to be there, that all the records are accurate. The urban legend was is that uh, one of the inspectors went to one of the grain bins unannounced, climbed up the top of the grain bin, and saw that there was grain down in the bin, so he jumped down in there, walked around, and uh verified that the corn was there, climbed back out, went downstairs to the bosses, okay, everything is fine. Your grain is all documented, it's there and and the operator said, We emptied that silo, that grain bin yesterday. He was walking around on the crust up on the top that didn't break apart, maybe five, six inches thick. He could have it could have broken through and he'd have dropped all the way down to the, the bottom. Urban legend but it's possible with the crust that gets in there, it's possible to be that strong that it can support uh, the weight of a a human being. So uh, it's just something to think about. Don't play around grain bins unless you know what you're doing. If you are part of the rescue associated with this, (sighs) I wouldn't go in there unless unless I knew what I was doing. I wouldn't go in there unless I had a a backpack on so you got some air just in case. You want to make sure you have a a line to secure you so that you can be pulled out if need be. Um, And remember that there's really no point getting into the bin if you can't see the person. If you can see them, well then maybe it might make more sense. If they're awake, maybe it makes more sense to throw them stuff first before you get down in there. You'll have to kind of play that by ear, but again, let the experts know, that know how to deal with this sort of thing, do this. If you don't feel comfortable, you should not go into that um, environment, unless of course you know what you're doing. And I, I clearly don't, so I wouldn't want to go in there at all. So again, here's, um, here's an example of what can happen is, is that there's a tendency as the, uh, the auger is pulling stuff out, it pulls it down from the middle. And if there's that crust across the top that you're walking on, as grain's being pulled down from the middle, what becomes underneath here is just air. And these are the sides of the grain being pulled down. And if this thing collapses, which it could, it pulls you down, you drop several feet down deep into side where the corn is at, and there's corn coming down on top of you all the time. So you can actually be pretty well covered up Uh, in just a few seconds. So this is the light to freedom and inside every grain bin they've got a ladder they've got a fairly large exit port um, and you can fit through there with an SCBA uh, if you feel like you need to get down in there but again remember don't go in unless you feel you know what you're doing. Now this is a, a special um, wagon that's designed to transport grain, corn, soybeans, that sort of thing. But there's really no auger uh, to this thing, it's all gravity flow. And essentially what it is is that it's shaped so that it angles towards one side and when you open up the hatch, gravity allows the, the um, corn or the, the grain to flow out of that. Uh, again, I, I don't understand why, but apparently this is a great play area for kids inside these wagons, especially when there's grain inside of them. And it comes out so quickly that if there is somebody inside, they open up the hatch, they can be pulled down very quickly. Now, the problem is, if it gets down to the end, um, it's, the gravity slows down and doesn't come out as fast. At the end of the, the uh, emptying Versus the beginning, so it's possible they can become trapped. It's possible they can uh, become suffocated in that. I'd also like you to note um, the edges along the top of the the wagon. Um, a lot of the older wagons have these kind of edges to give strength to the wagon so it makes sure that it can carry the load that it's supposed to and it's not uncommon for someone to be up here making sure if there's a crust that it's gone, making sure that the device is empty so when they open it up uh, they can not have to worry about someone sliding through. Unfortunately but sometimes when they jump down they get their hand caught on these edges, typically on a ring. And what ends up happening is they get hanging on the ring the ring ends up degloving the finger. It pulls all the skin and muscle off of the finger and so you've got it uh, exposed. That's why they really suggest strongly that farmers don't wear rings, watches. Uh, In fact, for that matter, people who work in industry around machines should not be wearing that sort of thing because it's very easy to get your hand caught up in the equipment. when the grain is harvest, especially if it's been a very moist um, year, the corn is very moist. So the idea would be is to, to not only keep it from spoiling, but to also make it more marketable, they dry it. So they we'll usually have some propane uh, that runs dryers, heats and fans so that it blows into the grain bin to try and get it dried out as quickly as it possibly can so that it prevents uh, spoilage on that. So again, there's a potential of a propane leak, there's a potential of electrical problems associated with these devices that the farmer comes in contact with. So you should be aware of these as you're approaching what you're dealing with these kinds of settings. Now, um, I'd also just wanna start talking a little bit about confined space environments that you might find yourself in. and There's really a couple of them. Um, there are the confinement buildings for animals where the flooring is such so that waste products from the animals drop down below and it has a tr- very powerful ventilation system to keep the gases that are produced from rising back up and killing the animals. They're very dependent upon electricity in those, in those environments. And then they are the silos, and I don't know if you've noticed there's, these are those kind of blue silo looking kinds of things that you'll see um, uh, on farms, that there are certain types of products that when they're put in here they also produce a gas that raises to the top and needs to be vented off. And these silos um, do that if you have to get into those kinds of areas, you can be overcome very quickly, either in the confinement building or in the silo. These are just some of the gases that are uh, present uh, in these confinement buildings. So all of these can cause you grief. They can all get you into trouble. So unfortunately, if the power goes off in a confinement building, um, the farmers are going to go in there to try and get as many of the animals out as they can because they can become quickly overcome by these gases. Unfortunately, the farmers become overcome as well and what you end up hearing is a farmer collapses so the son or another family member goes in to try and get the first guy out. They become collapsed and then it just kind of snowballs you get more and more people stuck in this confinement building because of the gases until someone comes in with a, a, a self-contained breathing apparatus to get everybody out. If, in fact, the power goes off, and they're not able to control the gases, then they start to rise up, and everything that is in there uh, will die because of that exposure. So, one of the things that you'll see is that that methane, which is there, By definition, it is an asphyxiant. In other words, it does not support metabolism. It'd be like breathing nothing as far as your body is concerned. And unfortunately, the methane itself doesn't have an odor to it. It's lighter than air, so it rises up from the bottom when the, the, the confinement building loses its power, and it's very, very flammable. So it's got a lot of bad things associated with that. Ammonia can cause a burn not only to the skin, but to the respiratory tract, and and I'm sure you're all aware of the uh, aroma associated with uh, ammonia, but again, in a gaseous state, it too is lighter than air. Carbon dioxide, as you know, is an asphyxiant, so it will not support metabolism, but fortunately, it's usually heavier than air, so it stays low in uh, in the pit. Hydrogen sulfide, which is that kind of rotten egg smell that you sometimes get, uh, that too is heavier, so that stays down, but it's present. So you find the farmer trying to get um, livestock out of the confinement building, and uh, they are overcome by the gases and uh, eventually uh, can die because of the asphyxiants that permeate the environment. If, in fact, they're trying to fix a piece of equipment down below in the receiving uh, pit, it is certainly possible that that some of the gases that were there are still present, and unless they have the right type of equipment on, um, they can become overcome. It's the same principle with uh, workers getting down in the sewer, and some of the sewer gases that you might see, or those folks that uh, are charged with cleaning out the railroad tank cars, getting down inside the tank car to clean things out. It's a less than friendly oxygen environment and they can be overcome very quickly. So, again, um, anytime that there is a uh, power outage, there's very much concern about the buildup of gases associated with, with these patients. So, as I mentioned, what ends up happening is someone is stuck, someone will say, well, I'll go in and get them and not wait for the help. And in some cases, they might tie a rope to them, but a lot of times they don't. Uh, And again, you'll see that these are folks that don't have any um, uh, special protective equipment on, so they're not trained in what they're doing and end up being stuck down in that environment. So it is very important that if you're going to go in there, you have the right stuff on. Um, self-contained breathing apparatus, protective turnout gear, helm all that to protect you in that kind of environment. So this is an example of the uh, the, the silo that I was talking about, where silage is put into that place, and again... Nitrogen dioxide is the big gas that comes off of that, and that, again, that too does not support uh, life. So there's a time when it's unsafe to be in there, but as the, uh, the, the, the uh, silo is filled, there's certain times when you're not supposed to be in there. It takes about two weeks for the gases to be developed and then be vented off. So after that two-week period, um, if you need to get into there, you probably could. Again, farmers do that to check the status of the, the silo, to check that sort of thing. Um, so, if you have to go inside one of the blue things on, uh, on a farm rescue, find out when it was filled. Someone should know that somewhere on the farm. And if it's within two weeks, uh, you really don't want to go in there. You'd only want to go in if you had the right equipment for that particular uh, patient. Sometimes the vents are kind of tough to identify, but it might just be uh, the cement lid, as an example, was acting as a vent. Um, Again, it might be dangerous around that vent during that two-week period as the gases are being vented off. Um, I don't think there's any other um, profession that involves more hazardous materials Uh, than farm. Because of all the uh, pesticides and uh, fertilizing products, they're exposed to a lot of different uh, situations associated with uh, dealing with agriculture. So, again, I don't know if you really spend any time in a a farm, but typically they've got a, a barn or a shed someplace where they store a lot of chemicals. And there are always a bunch of them. And you'll see that they kind of mix them up together. They know where stuff is at, but chances are they might not be aware of there's any hazards associated with uh, interacting of these various agents. So this type of building is really at risk for a fire, really at risk for some sort of toxic exposure. And again, be very careful if you find a setting where you've got this and you need to go in and get somebody out of that pesticides, um, as an example, are really designed to get rid of the bugs associated with eating the crops. So, although when you look at the whole country, 100 people a year dying from pesticide exposure is not significant, but you'll see that uh, there's quite a few, especially children, that are admitted because of accidental exposure to pesticides. And again, the term pest is really designed to get rid of the things that are pests to the crops. So it could be insects, could be other plants, could be rodents, and it could be fungus. Those are all things associated with affecting the growth of the the agricultural crops, so insecticides, herbicides, rodenticides, and fungicides. Probably the more common exposure to what you're going to see are those farmers that have an organophosphate uh, poisoning. Um, And again, this is um, uh, a chemical that is designed to kill insects, but it can affect the vagus nerve of your patients. So uh, you're going to see that um, the warning labels will kind of break it down into various categories You actually are supposed to go through training to handle pesticides and and get a certification so that it's clear what the various warning labels mean. And although they break it down to highly toxic, moderately toxic, and slightly toxic, they're all toxic to me. And I probably would not try and mess with any of those unless I had the proper training or the right equipment at that point. When we think about organophosphates, there are many, many different brands out there for farmers to use across the country. Uh, again, that sort of thing. Uh, as far as uh, the, uh, the levels of toxicity, um, the high level of toxicity is when it's in its powder form. Parathion is the more common brand name associated with that. Um, and I think you'll find that to, that in this form, it can be lethal from a few drops to a tablespoon of powder and liquid together. It's all it takes to kill someone. It's very, very toxic. Uh, the, the trichlorophon is a lethal dose in a tablespoon to uh, the size of about the, uh, of a large uh, tablet. And then low, it takes an ounce to about a pint malathion, which is typically what you'll see for home use. So depending upon what they're trying to do, whether they're working on their fields, whether they're trying to um, work around their home, you're going to have different levels of organophosphate poisoning. And it can be uh, fatal, depending upon what's happening with this patient. So again, remember when we talk about um, the Parasympathetic system, the acetylcholine is the chemical mediator for the parasympathetic system. So what ends up happening is, when there's organophosphate poisonings, the sites that generate acetylcholine crank out a whole bunch more, causing overstimulation of the nerve endings uh, for that patient. So what you end up seeing is uh, convulsions, coma, uh, respiratory and circulatory depression because it affects the vagus nerve as well. It starts to slow down the heart, starts to slow down um, respiratory patterns, and can affect the central nervous system. It's also possible can cause uh, twitching, paralysis, those kinds of things associated with that. If there is a sympathetic response, which is not clear in every case, but it might cause a tachycardic response to the heart rate. But typically, it's parasympathetic in nature. So what ends up happening is, is that you get a sludge response. You can remember, as uh, Dr. Hobbs was talking about, that's um, the salivation, lactation, urination, defecation, and then uh, GI and excretion. I think there's a lot of things to uh, think as far as dealing with uh, the uh, parasympathetic response. And you'll see that by vomiting, diarrhea, urinary incontinence on your patient when you arrive on scene. You think they've been exposed to something, you see those kind of responses, chances are you're dealing with someone that has got organophosphate uh, poisoning. So atropine is the drug of choice. And um, lots of atropine. Um, you know, we talk about in ACLS that uh, perhaps three milligrams of atropine is the maximum dose, or two milligrams of atropine. We're talking four five milligrams of atropine might be needed to stop the parasympathetic expect, effects. So uh, lots of atropine is needed in your ambulance when um, you uh, are dealing with um, parasympathetic response associated with organophosphate poisoning. When you also see the patient that's got this, you're gonna see they're gonna have fasciculation. And what fasciculation means is that you'll see the muscles quivering. Not a seizure, not a a seizure. You won't see the movement of the arms, but you'll see muscle masses quivering. It's also one of the things that you see when you administer paralytics. You'll see that there'll be some fasciculations associated with that. Um, I also have a lot of, uh, of, uh, of uh, saliva. You'll see some pupil responses associated with, with that patient. Uh, anhydrous ammonia is a uh, fertilizing agent, and it's actually Uh, ammonia that's in a gaseous state. Uh, Anhydrous actually means without water. There's no water involved in this. So it's in a gaseous state that's injected into the ground so they can start to work on the elements that are there to help in a fertilizing project. So what you'll see is is there'll be the tractor pulling the tank, the anhydrous tank, and then there'll be a, a device behind it with these probes that go down into the ground. As it's pulling it along, it's injecting the gas down into the ground, the anhydrous ammonia. And it's not uncommon when they lift these things up off of the ground so they can turn around that you'll see some of this cloud come out of the device. Uh, that is anhydrous ammonia uh, in the air. It is colorless, but it has a tremendous odor. You'd know it right away. And um, it is very, very cold. And what it does is it it's really attaches itself to fluid. It's a hydrophilic. In other words, if in fact the gas gets to your skin, your face, your eyes, your mouth, it'll absorb moisture from those tissues to try and make it get back into its normal state it actually looks like it's a burn that occurs with it, but it's actually pulling out moisture. It's uh, taking um, what fluid it can get out of the environment. So these are the areas you're going to see typically associated with injury with these uh, types of patients. Again, exposure to the respiratory tract is a big one because you're there kind of getting into the gas itself, as well as because it's so cold, it's possible that you might have frostbite. Now, here's, here's what I don't get, we and we'll be talking about this later, but um, meth labs use anhydrous ammonia, and it's not uncommon for people to go to a farm and try and steal anhydrous ammonia so they can cook the meth. So it's not uncommon for these folks that aren't used to that to get a lot of injury uh, or in the meth lab itself to have an exposure to anhydrous ammonia in somebody's house a garage, a car—you might be dealing with anhydrous ammonia burns. So be aware—it's not just a farm injury that you're going to see. It's used in a lot of other different things. How toxic is that? Uh, like if we're dealing with it, if somebody's got that burn, it's not still in the immediate area. Oh, good question. As far as toxicity, to you, if if the environment is safe, there's no white cloud that you're in. Um, I would still have my protective. Uh, Uh, clothing on, but chances are of you getting something out of that, it's probably going to be pretty minimal. The the fluid, uh, unless they're actually coated with stuff, the fluid is pretty well absorbed what it's going to be into the gas itself, and you'll just see the tissue damage. You're probably not going to get a lot of exposure yourself, but I would make sure that I was protected as best I possibly could, just in case. The idea is making sure you take care of the ABCs, life threats associated with this, and get uh, the clothing off, and then flush, try and restore some fluid to the areas that were affected, to try and get that fluid back in to stop the absorption process. So uh, here's an example where uh, some anhydrous ammonia got into this guy's face, caused damage there, And you can see, here's another example where it looks like it might be a burn, but it's actually fluid being removed from the tissues as part of a chemical reaction. Just like you to note the nose, you can see the white coming out of the nose. Uh, That's signs of pulmonary edema. Uh, So it's probably a fairly deep uh, inhalation injury on this patient uh, as well. Look at the tongue, look at the lips. Yep, yep, it certainly is. I don't know that the Parkland formula is the right thing to do, but at least I'd start giving them some fluid. Um, so I guess what I would just throw out to you, and I think I probably made this clear from, uh, from my presentation, I don't know how to rescue folks that are in an agricultural environment. Uh, I think I know what to do medically for them, but as far as some of the rescue stuff, I'm not very good at that. And I would hope that you would think about having a rescue unit that's oriented to those kinds of extrication techniques, rescue techniques that you need so you would be able to get the help that you want. And again, depending upon the state, like Iowa as an example, has lots of fire departments, small town community fire departments that are pretty good at dealing with these types of emergencies. I can't say the same for those you say in Alaska, where you do have agricultural products, but I don't know how often that occurs. And I don't know that you're going to have to deal much with it if you're working in Kansas City, Kansas, or working in Houston, where you might might not get a lot of agriculture, but you might be dealing with emergencies associated with someone in their yard, using organophosphates to kill bugs at home, or getting stuck with their lawnmower, those kinds of things. They're all parts of the agricultural process. Again, I think just to throw out to you is the fact that cribbing is important. Shovels, airbags, and uh, tarps to protect yourself in these kinds of, and to protect patients. Critical pieces of uh, rescue equipment and again, taking the extrication classes, the rescue classes to help you with those would be important. If there is an amputation, um, don't make the decision that, that's non-salvageable. Uh, grab what you can and take it with you. Protect it, clean it off, uh, maybe wrap it in something kind of moist, but don't let it actually come in contact with liquids, because as you know the fluids will absorb into the cells, rupture the cells, and make it so it's non-viable. You'll see that there's some injuries that really are kind of catastrophic looking, and I think it's important that you recognize that we aren't in a position to, to make a determination, but what we gotta do is treat the ABC stuff. Control the bleeding, immobilize as best we possibly can. Recognize that uh, this is an ankle foot sort of thing, you get caught in an auger, that you've got uh, some uh, problems with that. (coughs) Then you can see that this is a fracture. You can see that there's muscle involvement, there's ligament involvement, and the ankle involvement, again, from the the auger devices. This itself is not life-threatening. And it's very easy to develop tunnel vision and focus on this when you got to be thinking about the airway. Not life-threatening. Now, if, in fact, you do have a, an amputation that was mentioned, despite the fact how bad it looks, make sure that you grab everything that you can. Now, you also need to think about where are you going to transport this patient to. Uh, It doesn't make sense to take them to a a hospital where there isn't someone that can think about attachment issues. You know, and that's kind of limited to where those are at, so wherever you end up functioning at, know where uh, the best places to take these patients are. And if you're not going to transport them there because of your protocol or whatever, at least think about arrangements for a secondary transport via helicopter, via critical care unit, those kinds of things. Again, the power associated with uh, the equipment out in the uh, agricultural environment is very strong. So it can cause a lot of damage quickly when we're dealing with these kinds of patients. Um, I just wanted to finish up, this is a everyday garden variety lawnmower that someone inadvertently got their foot up underneath while the blade was spinning. So it's not just the farm environment that you're gonna see, it's certainly possible that uh, it can happen uh, at home. Now here's an example of an augering injury and you can see that twisting, kind of stretching motion associated with this. The problem with this is, is that it's certainly possible for a lot of bleeding. You know with uh, arterial injuries, when it's a straight cut across, chances are that artery is gonna spasm shut and kind of slow down the bleeding. you are not gonna have that with this, so um, a tourniquet's probably gonna be your best bet to control bleeding. I would suggest a blood pressure cuff, high enough to control the extremity wherever it might be, uh, and think about pain control. If you can get access, if the patient is conscious, as you might imagine, this could be very painful. So a couple milligrams of morphine, if their blood pressure allows for it, if their stas allows for it, to try and do some pain control. Uh, again, morphine is probably the drug of choice because it's reversible with Narcan if you do give it a little too much of that. Okay. Whether you get it caught on a pulley, whether you're using a tool that causes that, try and keep the injuries to a minimum associated with that. This is an example of that degloving type injury when you catch your ring on, the, on a uh, edge or something, and it just pulls all of the tissues off. Um, that finger will be amputated. You'll not be able to salvage uh, that finger. And again, here's a a muscle that was ruptured, injury associated uh, with uh, getting caught on a a pin in the uh, power takeoff area. Able to get away quickly, but you can see it can cause significant damage. Okay. Any questions? If you do, I'd have you refer to Tim.